Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahna Zaqani. According to a famous prophetic report, whoever imitates a people becomes one of them. But what does imitation here mean? In fact, what does the statement really mean at all? And how have Muslims historically understood it? How did this simple report become a doctrine in the Islamic tradition? What does the hadith mean for Muslims today in an increasingly interreligious atmosphere, and especially for those living in the West or in other non-Muslim majority contexts? And finally, why do humans care at all? Why do we invest so much in being different and displaying that difference from those whom we declare as an other? These and many other questions are answered in Yusha Patel's exciting book, The Muslim Difference, defining the line between believers and unbelievers from early Islam to the present, published with Yale University Press in 2022. The book explores the issue of difference and frames the hadith as significant to Muslim interreligious encounters, showing that ideas and examples of imitation and Muslims' understanding of the concept of the shabbuh or imitation or resembling the other have changed throughout times and in different contexts. And the debate around issues of religious difference, imitation, and Muslims' effort to distinguish themselves from non-Muslims tells us a lot about how Muslims understand and define religion. In our conversation today, we discuss the origins of the book, some of its main arguments and findings, the prophetic reports on imitation, its role in establishing a Sunni orthodoxy, given that the hadith or the concept of the shabuh is not found in Shia collections, and influential scholars and thinkers' development of the concept individuals such as Ibn Taymiyyah and Najmuddin al-Ghazi. We also discuss examples of small differences that are not to be imitated, and Patel explains the significance and value of these small differences, which are quite powerful and symbolic. Our conversation ends with the relevance of imitation and emulation for today's Muslims, including Muhammad Abdu's Transvaal Fatwa on, among other things, Muslims wearing European hats or Muslims doing, you know, Christian European things and how other Muslim scholars responded to this fatwa. Let's now hear from Yusha Patel. Hi, Salam Yusha. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your very wonderful and very relevant uh, book, The Muslim Difference, Defining the Line Between Believers and Unbelievers from Early Islam to the Present. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to um, have this conversation with you and hopefully the audience will appreciate it and be excited as much as we are. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we'd like to begin our discussion with uh, the author's intellectual journey, their intellectual background. Can you tell us who you are, describe your journey, tell us how you got here and where you are right now? Sure. Um, a memoir compressed into five minutes. Um, well, I guess, first of all, I'll introduce my myself. I'm Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Lafayette College um, in Easton, Pennsylvania. I uh, received my um, uh, PhD from Duke University, um, <clears throat> and 
I guess those are my initial credentials. To, to begin the intellectual journey, where to start? There's so many beginnings. Um, I think I'll start with my intellectual journey and then in some ways work backwards to, to the book. So I, I was in high school and it was my senior year and I took a course in 20th century literature and thought. And I was exposed to um, folks like Sartre and Camus and Freud and Kafka. And that got my uh, that got me interested in kind of philosophy and religion, um, subjects that I didn't have too much of an interest in before. So when I went to the University of Michigan, when I did my undergraduate degree, um, I continued to explore those ideas, even though I entered as, as pre-med. And so, um, you know, I did all the pre-med requirements because that's what um, good South Asian boys do. And um, but then realized at the end of my sophomore year that I really wasn't interested in becoming a medical doctor. I didn't like blood. I didn't like being in hospitals. Um, so I decided to pivot. And at that point, I was interested in making a lot of money. So I decided to major in economics and, you know, see what I could do um, in the world of business and whatever. So um, at the same time, I continued to take courses um, in philosophy and religion, existentialism. Um, and in my senior year, I took a course with um, uh, Professor Sherman Jackson, Jackson um, called Islamic Intellectual History. And that was really the first course um, in Islamic studies that I had taken. And it was, it was you know, mind blowing to me and, and opened up, a, you know, new worlds. Um, but still at that point, I had no aspiration of going into the academy. So I moved to Chicago and there worked as a management consultant and later as a, worked for a mutual fund. So um but at that point, I still wasn't very happy with what I my the career trajectory. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to be able to study religion and Islamic studies for a living? Um, and and I was like, well, I could do that. <laughs> so uh, so I, I took courses at the University of Chicago in the Near Eastern Language and I think Civilizations program to um, to take more courses in in that field and to help uh, prepare me for graduate school. Um, I was fortunate that uh, I was accepted at, at Duke University to work with Ibrahim Musa and Bruce Lawrence, then also at UNC um, to work with Carl Ernst, and also Leela Prasad at uh, um, Duke University, who are my dis uh, eventually my dissertation mentors. So that is sort of my trajectory into the world of academia, into Islamic studies as a nonlinear path. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how I got into the academy. Um, now, kind of the book in particular, and how that particular um, book and subject became the focus for the better part of over a decade, I'm going to re rewind a bit and go all the way back to my birthplace of Edinburgh, Scotland. And this is a story that I mentioned in my preface, but I, I feel it's worth mentioning here. And I was um, in primary one, the equivalent of kindergarten in the United States, and I was in uh, you know, my class. And one day I came home and I told my mother, I'm in a group all by myself. And she was confused, like, what did I mean? And I, I, was, I was upset. I don't remember too well, but from what I remember and from what my mom rehearsed, uh, repeated to me of the story, I was upset that I was put into a reading group all by myself while all the other students were in groups. Um, it was also the case that I was the only student of color and the only Muslim in the class. So my mother, who had spent some time as a teacher, knew that this was not 
the way to teach young children because you know, when you go to school it's not just about learning it's about learning how to function socially there's a socialization process when we go to school and this was not the way for um an immigrant uh, person of color to be um uh, to learn how to socialize so she confronted the teacher miss mcgowan and said well why uh, are you teaching my, my, my son in this way? Um, because if he, if you do, and he's not allowed to interact with other students, then he'll think he's different. Um, and so, but Miss McGowan defended her, um, teach her pedagogical, um, methods. And my mother then went to the administration and wasn't successful. Um, that traumatic event was in many ways a tipping point for, for my parents who decided that um, after some other experiences of, I guess, non-belonging, that maybe it might be a good idea to, to leave the country altogether. So um, later that year, that's exactly what we did. We emigrated or immigrated to the United States um, and I landed up in New Jersey. So I begin with that that narrative because the idea of being different and thinking about what that means was something that um, goes back to my earliest memories. Um, now, to kind of fast forward you know, roughly 20 years to that time in Chicago when I was working as a management consultant, I still had no aspirations of going into the academy. I'm now um, in at a Friday chutbah, a sermon, attending a Friday uh, sermon in the north side of Chicago. And the um the khatib the uh the the speaker mentions uh, uh, in his um, sermon that the muslims must be different and that was the theme of his sermon um and what proceeded or to take place really fascinated me how did he justify this within the islamic tradition that it was a normative ideal uh, an obligation almost for muslims to be different and what did it mean so he recited this hadith this tradition of Muhammad, uh, or whoever imitates a people becomes one of them. And that was the signature um, sort of saying or statement that he used to argue that it's important for Muslims to cultivate a distinct identity. He then cited many other ahadith, um, everything from uh, traditions about lowing, growing long beards to um, dressing distinctly to argue that to be different was not merely an internal trans transformative process. It was not merely about subject formation um, or self-cultivation. It was also about displaying your Muslimness. So I was, you know, and this was sort of around 9-11. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, this has major implications for Muslim belonging, for Muslim aspirations, at least for immigrants like myself, of assimilation or acculturation, adaptation, uh, whatever word you want to use. Um, and I I, 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 I was thinking a lot about that uh, sermon because it had so much, it really hit to the core of who I was. And I think other people there um, were also perhaps affected by that. Um, so it was something that kind of stayed in the back of my mind when I went to, to Duke. And when I took a course on Islamic law with, you know, Professor Ibrahim Musa, and I was trying to decide upon, you know, what I should do for my topic for that paper. And I thought, well, I haven't really read anything um, that was really sophisticated theoretically and conceptually about this idea. And so I chose that for my paper and eventually chose that for my dissertation. Um, when I spoke to Michael Cook about this idea, he gave me the image of throwing um, a brick into a a window and shattering it. He said, "That's the the image that I have of 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 this 
um, idea for a dissertation. And it helped to crystallize the idea in my mind that this was actually a good choice for, for that subject. So um, that is how I got into the book, uh, or rather into the dissertation, which eventually became a book. Um, the journey I had on and the dissertation and uh, spending about a year in Damascus, which was one of the best times of my life, uh, living with a um, in-home family, um, and exploring this important manuscript related to um, this concept is something that I hope to get into in this conversation. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's um, a, congest- a, a concise version um, of the journey and, and the story. Thank you so much for all of that. That was very helpful because my next question was going to be, you know, what are the origins of this book? I found your discussion, your experience in uh, in Edinburgh as a, as a child and then coming into the U.S. and hearing that khutbah also very, very powerfully written. Um, it felt very lyrical, and it was such a beautiful style of writing too. So that was uh, that was a good, fun read and sad also. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then let's talk about uh, what you see as some of the main contributions uh, or some of your main arguments um, findings in the book. We'll get to some of the main points um, in detail for the for the rest of the interview also. But if you want to just summarize some of the main contributions and ideas. Uh, that would be great. Sure. Um, the the book, I admit, is is ambitious. Um, it's ambitious from you know the title. It it, it promises or at least um, claims that it's going to cover uh, this idea of being different from early Islam to the present. So, and, and academics, including myself, might look at that title and 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 be skeptical. I'm not sure about that. How can you cover the entirety of Islam, um, <laughs> Islamic history in a single book? Um, so, I mean, I, I understand that skepticism, and I might approach the title with a bit of skepticism too. But um, what I do is I do I do attempt to make it into a manageable uh, study. Uh, what I have pers- you know attempted to um, do, you know, looking back, um, maybe, maybe not, I wouldn't have chosen the precise, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, di- the, the expansiveness of this dynamic study as, as I, as I did, but I, I felt, um, I was just really curious and I wanted to explore, um, the beginnings of this idea. I wanted to explore who the main, um, thinkers were that, that, um, helped to, shape this idea into something of a, a normative discourse and that's one of the arguments in the book um and i and because of its re- relevance to the present as as you mentioned and to my own experiences i wanted to at least touch upon some of the um modern and contemporary uh um <clears throat> connections uh to modern muslim life so to kind of get back to the beginning um of the idea so uh, <clears throat> I struggled with even framing the topic because on the one hand, as you mentioned, the the tradition itself um, that is in many ways at the core of this idea is whoever imitates a people becomes one of them. Um, there's no actually explicit mention of being different in that tradition. So the idea of emulation or imitation um, also figures into the core of, of, of the book. Um, but because of the way this tradition has been pressed into service by Muslims across time and place, and a whole cluster of other hadith traditions that that does so, um, I felt that this is really kind of what 
that Muslim thinkers were trying to get at, the importance of being distinct and different. Um, and so I had to sort of conceptually frame, I chose to conceptually frame the book with that idea. Um, so the, the book uh, is an attempt to explore this idea of being distinct. And uh, it makes it manageable by taking this, these cluster of traditions, the scriptural, the scriptural traditions, namely the hadiths. And hadiths, for non-specialists, can be scary. Um, and because a much, of, much of hadith studies um, often involve isnad analysis, studying transmission networks that are often portrayed as being off limits or uh, to non-specialists. So I, what I wanted to do, if I'm going to do a, 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 um, a, write a book that focuses on Hadith traditions and how they've been interpreted and uh, received over time, I wanted to make it uh, at least ex accessible to a non-specialist audience as best as I possibly could. And so um, the idea of... Um, and so that's what I attempt to do in, in, in this book. So even though the, the book does is not divided into two parts, it does, um, uh, the first three or four chapters focus on the beginnings of this idea within the Hadith traditions. Um, how did, what are some of the scriptural bases uh, and evidence that later Muslims would use um, that helped to uh, shape the idea of being different? Um so the first chapter, for example, uh, which I've titled Turning Away from Christians and Jews, um, examines some of these hadith traditions that uh, focus on a particular moment in the life of the prophet, which seemed to indicate there was a, a pivot from a policy of deliberately emulating um, Muslims, uh, non-Muslims, Christians and Jews, to pivoting away from that idea. Um, and so that is the subject of the, of the first chapter. Um, it then kind of takes on from that, looks at the Hadith tradition in particular, whoever imitates the people becomes one of them, um, and then moves on to um, kind of expanding on how this single tradition evolved into what might be called a discourse. Um, and then I then look at key uh, thinkers who helped to develop this idea um, in you know, Damascus and Egypt, and then ultimately uh, uh, contemporary United States um, and elsewhere. Um, in terms of the some of the main ideas that I'm working with, um, concepts and, and theories, um, I argue in, in the introduction that I'm trying to uh, speak or try to not talk about theory from above only in terms of applying sort of Euro-American uh, theories and ideas and and apply it merely to Islamic texts. But I'm also trying to generate theory from what we might call below. So to think of Muslim thinkers or to uh, to portray Muslim thinkers, Muslim ulama as theorists of themselves and themselves, um, thinking about what it means to be different, thinking about imitation and what mimesis is. Um, and so that is my one of my main approaches in terms of the overall book to view Muslim thinkers as theorists uh, in themselves. Um, another, you know, kind of connected to that, um, <clears throat> I guess the other key uh, thing that I'm trying to do in this book is to connect 
being different to this idea of mimesis or imitation. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, uh, or at least some time in the introduction, explaining why imitation or mimesis um, is so important to human experience. So from from our childhood, um, from the very beginnings of um, when we're and when we enter this world, we are imitating and emulating uh, our parents, um, images that we see, other people that we see, and it shapes fundamentally who we are and who we become uh, to such a degree that we are often unconscious of what we are emu emulating or imitating. And so that is one of the reasons why this idea of being distinct and different became so important to Muslims, was that imitation they saw as being this human process, um, this fundamental uh, technology of the self that had to be managed and had to be controlled and had to be disciplined. Uh, and so, so much of these traditions that we see are attempts by uh, the prophet, at least if we um, believe these hadiths to be, at least some of them to be uh, authentic, um, and later Muslim thinkers to discipline and um, at least control the unwieldiness of our tendency to emulate and imitate others. Um, and that's one of the reasons why um, this book is also about otherness. Um, and that's very much central to to this book. What it means for uh, how did Muslim how did Muslim thinkers across time and place imagine and construct the other, uh, not merely the religious other, but also the internal Muslim other, whether that other was um, a, a slave, um, uh, whether that whether it was gendered, uh, whether that other was even of a non-human um, creature such as an, a jinn uh, or an animal. And that was one of the most surprising things to me when exploring this idea um, of being distinct and different was the degree to which not only were Muslims focused on Muslim relations with non-Muslims and Christians and Jews, but also the degree to which uh, Muslim thinkers were very much concerned with Muslims imitating and emulating other Muslims and creating a hierarchical society based on those differences. Um, and I, I explore that in chapter three, um, uh, in, in detail. I, I was going to ask you a question and I, I I still like to get into it at some point uh, in our conversation, but just this, this tendency for humans to want to differentiate themselves from, from the other. And, and you have some really interesting theories that you're discussing here that explain why humans do this and not a clear boundary, but as you show very well, it's a transformation, right? And it's it's very inconsistent. There are times when imitate, imitating the other is good. There are time when it's times when it's not good. But I would especially like for audience to hear to, to hear of some of the examples that you explore here of what exactly imitation means. What are these things that we shouldn't be imitating uh, the non-Muslim or the other um, in? Yeah. So um, you know. Yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll you know, look at, at this question in kind of three parts. First, I'm going to focus on the Arabic term um, tashabbu, which is in that hadith. Then I'm going to think, uh, speak briefly about the importance of the body um, and visibility, and then I'll give some specific examples. So first, looking at the key term tashabbu. So this is an Arabic term that is part of that hadith, man tashabbaha biqawmin fuwa minhum. It's a fifth form term, to get a little bit nerdy here, um, fifth form Arabic term that implies some kind of self-reflexivity. It can be translated as imitate, but other terms can also be used, such as resemble, 
um, even assimilate. For example, uh, MJ Kister's article on the subject where he focuses on Jewish shoes, uh, he uses the translation, Lat Shabboes, do not assimilate. Um, imitate uh, mimesis, right, is another term that one could use. So there's this cluster of, of terms um, uh, that and within English that connect to this Arabic term of tashabbu. So tashabbu in many ways exceeds the the term imitate uh, that we that I'm using generally speaking to speak about this idea. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing. Um, I want student uh, the audience to understand that this Arabic term uh, is 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 robust and it's also it spills over into other ideas of doubt um so there are some other arabic terms uh derived terms such as fool's gold um uh, that's derived from shabaha mutashabihat uh, in the quran refers to chronic verses that are ambiguous that are unclear um, once again, that's derived from the trilateral root shabaha. The Arabic term tashabu is not found in the Quran, um, and uh, it is primarily a hadith-based term. So that's the first thing I want to keep in mind, uh, or um, have audiences, you know, the readers uh, recall. Um, now, the idea of resembling um, also uh, helps us to think about visibility. Um, if someone says, oh, you resemble um, Jeff Goldblum um, or you resemble so-and-so, they're kind of focusing on your the, your uh, external resemblance. So the, the term itself also um, helps us to think about why so much of the discourse on the subject revolves around the body, um, revolves around um, the physical senses. And one of the things that I mentioned at the outset is that when thinking about distinction and difference, some people might enter this book thinking they're going to read about um, theology in the sense of um, debates about whether Jesus is uh, God or not and how Muslims distinguish themselves in that way. Um, but that's not the primary sort of domain or zone that Muslim things were were focusing on when the idea of being different. They were focused on things that were embodied and visible. Um, and so that's another, I think, conceptual frame of reference that I'm really bringing that I want to, that I emphasize at the outset um, in this book. And that's something that that colors the entire book from the beginning all the way through the end, the importance of the body, the importance of visibility in the physical senses. Um, and why is that? Because I, one of the other main points I argue is that this is also about shaping an Islamic public. Um, if the visib if Muslims can't be recognized visibly uh, or even audibly as Muslims, then how can um, um, Muslim uh, elites shape an Islamic polity? What would that look like? And so that's one of the key questions about Muslim difference. It's not just about what does it mean to be different? It means what does Muslim difference look like? Um, and that's one of the important, uh, you know, conceptual points I'm making in this book that I that I think speaks to the relevance of this whole study to many of the debates that we're having today about visible Muslimness, whether in Europe and North America, whether it has to do with Swiss minaret bands or niqab bands or um, and anxieties over Muslim beards um, and its associations with um, uh, 
um, uh, being the bad guy, for example. So uh, these questions about visible Muslimness connect very much to this discourse. So in terms of specific examples, um, contemporary examples include um, apparent <laughs> uh, uh, bans on Muslims celebrating Christmas and other holidays, um, even celebrating Halloween, for example, um, on the apparent necessity of Muslim growing beards. Um, and when you look in, you know, and those are some of the modern or contemporary kind of um, applications of this idea that you find in various fatawa and um, discussion boards, um, and even uh, treatises uh, against imitation, which I haven't spoken about and that I should. Um, when you go back in time and you go to the Hadith traditions, and I try to survey at least some of them, I can't, I don't survey all of them, um, but I do attempt to be illustrative and not necessarily exhaustive. Um, they connect to everything from uh, um, an interesting anecdote, just to um, mention one, is the anecdote that I speak of in chapters three and four, um, and, and four in particular, about um, the Caliph Omar uh, and his encountering with a slave girl who was wearing a hijab or a headscarf. And one might think today, uh, and then what ends up happening in this tradition is that um, he chastises her and in some some versions literally physically strikes her uh, for, for wearing uh, a headscarf and posing as a free woman. Um, one might read this tradition and be surprised. Well, isn't wearing a hijab a good thing? Isn't wearing a headscarf a good thing? Why would the Caliph Omar um, be chastising someone uh, for wearing a headscarf? And that gets us into some of the, I think, the um, surprising historical um, uh, matters in this book, that we're entering a time in which uh, hierarchy and maintaining certain hierarchies were very important. So the hierarchy between a slave woman and a free woman um, and the different legal applications to those legal persons was very much a, um, <clears throat> uh, something that was important to early Muslims to maintain. And so whether or not this hadith is authentic or not, um, you know, and one could do the asnad analysis and the, the, there are many traditions, and, and Omar uh, Anchesi has uh, written an article examining all these different traditions um, recently. Uh, but that gets at the idea, idea, idea of how uh, this idea of emulation um, was applied in, in ways that are actually different from how they're applied today. Um, but we're getting into the body, into visible Muslimness. Um, you mentioned pecking, uh, pecking like a rooster. So not only um, you know the domain of social life, but also ritual life was was shaped by this idea. Um, so I mentioned the idea of Jewish shoes. So we find traditions, for example, that uh, encourage Muslims to wear shoes in the mosque when they pray, because um, at least according to this tradition, the assumption was that Arab Jews, when they entered a synagogue, would remove their shoes. Um, and apparent emulation of Moses when entering a holy space, when he encountered God, he was ordered as, as you know, not only mentioned in the Bible, but also the Quran, he took off his shoes. So uh, the application or the idea was that, okay, when entering a holy space, it's good to remove one's shoes. But then we find a Hadith tradition where the prophet is, is uh, condemning or at least criticizing that practice um, and telling Muslims, well, actually, when you enter the mosque, 
keep your shoes on. Now, anyone who's entered a mosque today will know that that's not what Muslims do generally. I have entered mosques in which actually to revive this sunnah, um, as it were, they they um, wear shoes in the mosque. And I, I was like, on a carpet? No, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, so that's once again an another, uh, you know, Topic that we might be able to have shoes entering like what does this have to do with but it is about ritual practice um you know with regard to pecking like a rooster when the prophet muhammad was attempting to instruct uh, and teach muslims how to pray he was teaching them proper corporeal techniques um to on how to pray because when muslims pray it's not merely an abstract disembodied experience you stand you bow you prostrate you put your hands in a particular place uh, whether it be in your chest or um, underneath your belly button depending on the school of law depending on your gender um, you face a particular direction physical direction cardinal direction um, so this involves um, disciplining your body in a particular way so when the prophet was teaching muslims how to pray um, he would say, well, if you are going to prostrate, don't peck like a rooster, right? Rather, um, you know, don't uh, take your time, go slow, um, be relaxed. Uh, he also allegedly uh, instructed Muslims not to kneel down like a camel. So when going down to prostrate. So in other words, when prostrating, put your hands down first before your knees, don't put your knees down first and then place your hands down. Um, today, this has relevance uh, to distinguishing um, Salafi forms of prayer from, say, how Hanafis pray, Hanafi uh, followers of the Hanafi school. Um, and if you, uh, Salafis are very um, st uh, strict about um, placing one hand, one's hands first before one's knees. Uh, before when prostrating as a way to say, well, this is the proper way to pray. And this is the hadith te uh, proof text that demonstrates that. So um, there are numerous ways in which um, this idea was applied to in Muslim everyday life. Um, and so many of them revolve around the body, corporeal techniques and visibility, even with regard to the adhan. When we look at the idea of the call to prayer and you look at Muslim texts on the subject of being different, how Muslims came to the idea of calling to prayer with an audible voice is another way in which uh, the idea of being distinct and different um, was imagined by, by Muslims. Uh, so th there are different narratives, uh, hadith traditions about how this came to be, but the idea was that, okay, um, uh, Jews uh, use... Um, a shofar um christians use a another uh instrument um not not a bell at least in the seventh century but another in, another instrument so muslims should then use the human voice to call to prayer and so this is another way in which we find this applied to the domain of ritual life um so there there are many other um, <clears throat> traditions um, and uh, domains and zones of, of Muslim life that we don't even think about today, uh, or at least we just assume um, had nothing to do with being distinct and different, but just came about um, organically. Uh, and in a way, they were organic. They were based uh, and rooted in encounters that Muslims had with the others. And I think 
um, it helps us to see, uh, conceptually speaking, how religions very much develop in uh, intersubjectively. Um, and so, you know, when we teach about religion or Islam or we teach a world religions course, we often we tend to teach them discreetly. But the reality is that when we look at the histories of uh, these religions, um, they develop and emerge because of the encounters that practitioners have with with others that ultimately shape um, uh, core core features of what um, those religions eventually become in everyday life. You know the 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 whole the shoes one that um, the prophet said it's good to take your shoes off. No, sorry, take keep your shoes on. That was brand new information to me, and I was like, oh, blasphemy, blasphemy! <laughs> like the idea of a sho shoes in a mosque is like that's not okay. But you know, and and the whole um, standing up or sitting down during for funerals or uh, the parting of hair was really interesting too. Just these very. Things that appear so, so simple, but as you argue, carry so much value. And these are symbolic um, things also. So we'll talk about the symbolism in just a bit. But um, I or, or I think another one that was really fascinating to me was the fasting on um, the 10th day. The Jews do it on the 10th day of Ashura. And so um, the prophet is going to do it on the 9th. Is that I think it was, it was like whichever, whichever day the Jews do it, the prophet is going to do it a different day. And that was just really, really fascinating, too. But um you have a discussion in the book where this hadith, which even its authenticity is questioned at times, or some scholars um, consider the, the chain to be weak, um, but it still becomes so important. Um, and that it's not in the Shi'i collections and not just this hadith, but any any notion of um, you know emulation or imitation um, being discouraged in the Shi'i tradition. Can you speak to that some more? Because you argue that uh, this then suggests to you that uh, this concept, this concept, then this concept of the shabba plays a uh, an important role in in defining Sunni Muslim orthodoxy. And I'd love to hear some more about this. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. That's that's a very important question. Um, so, yeah, um, one of the you know surprising things when I was um, doing my initial exploration um, of this uh, this language, the, this vocabulary, right? So, when we're looking at you know as an historian, how do we kind of get uh it's an epistemological problem how do we know anything in the past right so what are we what kind of sources are we looking at so when i'm thinking about this idea i'm looking at um uh these scriptural texts and and hadith traditions to get at this idea um, of how muslims distinguish themselves um and one of the things in exploring various um corpora or or uh sources within uh, across Muslim traditions was I found that um, that this vocabulary of speaking about difference of using this particular term tashabbu um, and its connected term in Arabic mukhalafa to be distinct and different was heavily concentrated within the Sunni tradition um, I when looking at some uh, the, the core um, um collections of uh, hadith within um, 12 Shi'i, um, 12 Shi'ism, for example, um, this vocabulary wasn't, uh, I, I didn't find many traditions at all. Um, and I was, I was surprised. Um, and so it helped me to see that not only was this 
vocabulary, this uh, this uh, tracing this vocabulary of dis, uh, distinction and difference about tracing how Muslims viewed and perceived and distinguished themselves or defined the line between themselves and others. It was clearly a way of looking at the deliberate choices that Sunni, that, you know, the Ahlul Hadith, the Sunni partisans of Hadith made when choosing which traditions to include in their collections um, in a way that eventually helped to shape and define the Sunni um, orthodoxy uh, and, and bring into relief its difference and distinction from um, Shi'i, uh, 12, at least 12 or Shi'i um, orthodoxy. And so that was one of the most surprising things that I found based, just based on a textual analysis um, of these sources. Now, does it mean that being distinct and different were, were not important to Shi'i Muslims? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying um, is, and then for students of, of Shi'ism, um, the concept of taqiyya, for example, and I kind of argue in the book, it's almost like an inverse of this Arabic term tashabu, but taqiyya is protective dissimulation of protecting oneself and in many ways, passing as maybe a Sunni in situations of danger. Um, this this idea of taqiyya became important to, to uh, within mainstream Shiism. And I speak of that as sort of the inverse and 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 uh, op- uh, the inverse of, of Tashabu. But um, that was surprising to me um, because uh, to see this distinction, as it were, in how Sunni Muslims talked about being different from the way Shi'i Muslims talked about being different. Um, and so that's where I argue that when, if we kind of expand and, and um, look at the big picture, this helps us to see that the process of collecting hadith traditions, which took you know a couple of centuries to um, to take place, and I'm not going to get into the whole sort of story of how hadiths became normative and uh, important to Orthodox Islam, um, but you know suffice to say for students of Islam, the Quran became. Um, sort of canonized much sooner than the hadith traditions did. The hadith traditions were canonized roughly in the 9th century and 10th century um, for Sunnis and Shi'is. So it, it, it just helped me see uh, that this um, vocabulary of difference was also a way of seeing in w- the ways in which um, Sunni difference, Sunni Muslim difference, also came into relief with the... Um, Canonizations, canonization of uh, of hadiths. Um, so that's in some ways why I argue in the book that there is um, <clears throat> why there's a disproportionate focus on uh, Sunni sources within the book um, because this particular way of talking about difference um, is is in many ways distinctive to to Sunni Muslims. Thank you for that. Let's talk about a couple of the main thinkers um, who are so instrumental to this discussion in your book also. So Ibn Taymiyyah was, so I, I really enjoyed his interpretation. Um, I know he's often reduced to, you know, extremism and Wahhabism and all of that. But uh, here I found it so incredibly fascinating that for him, 
Teshebu for him becomes not just some abstract idea, but a fundamental principle in Islam, right? And in fact, it is uh, when 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 a Muslim does imitate a non-Muslim, then they're uh, they're doing shirk. They're not shirk, uh, kufr. Um, but then he also complicates this idea so that uh, it's not such a binary. Um, but it's there are different kinds of the, uh, uh, good or bad imitations. So I would love, and, and then I, if I understood correctly in this um, inner chapter in the Taymiyyah, you're arguing that he plays an instrumental role for what sounds to me like mainstreaming this idea, the developing this idea of, or mainstreaming this idea, this hadith or this tradition. Um, I would love for our listeners to hear what some of his interpretations are um, and how I guess what role he plays in mainstreaming this idea. Um, and I'll, I, my next question, and, and you can address it in your response if you'd like, but um, in terms of complicating, for him, it's like, it, it's complicated in that it's both, it's a kufr to imitate the non-Muslim, but at the same time, Muslims living in a non-Muslim context, Muslims living in, abroad in a non-Muslim context may in some cases be actually required to uh, imitate them um, if it serves a greater good or a benefit to Islam. So how is he drawing, what is what is he arguing here? Um, what is he, you know, what's his theory about this imitation business? Yeah, no, a great question. And, and thank you for that. Um, now, to, to answer the question of the importance of Ibn Taymiyyah, I want to just um, rewind a little bit to um, <clears throat> an intervention I make in the introduction. Um, for for viewers or for listeners um, who might be thinking about, you know, growing the beard and headscarves and wearing shoes, um, they might get they might wonder why are are Muslims focusing on these little things? Um, like why are they so small? And so um, one of the sort of main theories um, that I draw on at the outset is this this theory that I found. Um, by Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of small differences or minor differences. And this idea was that those who are, um, his basic premise was that those who are alike um, or most alike will tend to or seek to distinguish and differentiate themselves in ways that are small. Uh, hence, narcissism of small differences, and and so I found that this um, this this uh, this theory to be attractive for helping to explain um, why um, the these ways uh, in which Muslims are seeking to be different are, I guess, quote unquote, small, right? But I I, I sort of also argue that while they're small in I, I, I argue that, well, there's a bit of a blind spot there too, that we need to nuance this idea of smallness as to the scale of these differences, um, the size, as it were, the differences. But in terms of the value and meaning of these differences, um, they're actually quite big um, and quite large. And that gets us into the, the question of their symbolic value. Um, and this will you know, also enter into why I think Ibn Taymiyyah is important. Um, so one of the arguments that I make in, in chapter four, which is the chapter preceding Ibn Taymiyyah, is that the reason why these small things become important is because they gain symbolic significance. So imagine um, burning an American flag, right? If you think about it, it's simply burning a piece of cloth. But an American flag, um, for many Americans, um, has symbolic value. 
uh, and to do so like burning a Quran. Um, it carries much more weight than simply uh, destroying a physical object. Uh, it has meaning for people and people value it and they see themselves in these objects. So to, to destroy these objects, for example, um, can cause riots, can cause discontent, can lead to legal consequences. Uh, and Ibn Taymiyyah, um, who, you know, I is one of the most controversial thinkers um, in the Sunni Islamic tradition, at least, makes an important intervention in, in many ways. So kind of going back to four, the 14th century, he dies in 1328, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he is a figure who plays an important role in, as you argue, or as you mentioned, mainstreaming this idea. So um, <clears throat> even though prior to Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, the hadiths were canonized um, and had entered into legal corpora um, and fatawa collections. Um, I have, at least from my research, I hadn't found a single treatise that had really um, argued forcefully that this was a fundamental principle of Islam. And that is one of the important main arguments that Ibn Taymiyyah makes in this text called Iqtidai Surat al-Mustaqim, Mukhalifat Ashab al-Jahim, or um, it's an incendiary title, the the obligation um, um, of following the straight path uh, in order to be distinct uh, and different from those damned to hell. <laughs> so um, I don't think uh, an academic work um, like that has been written recently. But uh, anyway, um, that's the title of his book. It's a polemical work. And he's operating within 14th century Damascus, where he's afraid um, of the Mongols uh, destabilizing and, and taking over um, the Mamluk Sultanate. He himself fought, fought jihad um, and was concerned uh, at least both not only with foreign policy, but with domestic policy, um, and saw that, at least in his everyday experience, that there was a tendency for Muslims, even though by that point they were the majority within Damascus, of, of copying non-Muslims, um, of celebrating various holidays and festivals. So this book has been included, you know, for, for decades, or at least uh, as one of the Qutub al-Bid'ah, the books uh, against innovation, against heretical innovation. And what I argue in, in, in this chapter is that, well, um, you know, scholars have focused on innovation, on, on bid'ah, and its importance within shaping Islamic orthodoxy and its, and its way of, of defining the sunnah, the, the normative conduct of the prophet. But generally speaking, they have overlooked the importance of imitation, of tashabbu, to also likewise shaping orthodoxy of what is correct islam um and and so that is the role that imitation plays in ibn Taymiyyah's text it's at the, at the very outset um uh he are, makes his argument drawing on the hadith traditions uh, and drawing on the hadith man minhum to argue that it is a normative ideal it is a fundamental principle of islam that Muslims must be different. And then he um, argues that this difference must take place um, visibly and in public. Um, and one of the thing, uh, main contributions that he makes is not only by simply drawing these texts together and, and bringing them together uh, systematically for the first time, but he gives it a theoretical 
scaffolding, uh, a discursive scaffolding, if you will, arguing that um, you know when we think about imitation, we need to think about intention and motive, and that um, helps to define the um, legal and even theological consequences of imitation. Because intent, and, and there have been books written about this, plays an important role in Islamic law. Um, and is a fundamental idea in defining um, what counts as a good act or a bad act, right? So if you pray and your intention is to um, not worship God, but to simply look good, then that prayer, even if outwardly seems like a pious act, is a mundane act. So Ibn Taymiyyah argues that intention likewise depends upon the motivation of the actor, of the Muslim. Is there a deliberate and conscious attempt to degrade and defame Islam, um, uh, to emulate someone else because they look up to them and look down upon Muslims, as opposed to simply doing so unconsciously. Um, and so this plays a role in for Ibn Taymiyyah in defining the the uh, how serious an act of um, wrong imitation is. So, for example, celebrating Maundy Thursday, which is something al khamis al haqir he calls derogatively uh, a holiday that Christian Damascene Christians, um, you know, would observe and uh, would do so with eating special foods and wearing special clothes and performing special rites. He wasn't happy that Muslims would participate <laughs> with these Christians in these holidays, and so after you know arguing theoretically for the obligation of being distinct, he then focuses on um, you know, uh, celebrating festivals in particular. Um, but one of the arguments he makes is that shi'ar, or these markers of difference, right? And this is where there's a level of theoretical sophistication in Ibn Taymiyyah's work, and why we should think of Muslim thinkers and Muslim ulama as theorists in themselves. He's arguing and acknowledging that, look, communities define themselves through shi'ar, which is an Arabic term that means a uh, marker or symbolic symbolic marker. Um, and Muslims need to preserve their distinguished distinctive markers and not culturally appropriate markers that are not their own. Um, and so uh, that is where he makes this theoretical inter intervention of the importance of symbols to defining community, something that sociologists, modern sociologists have, have spoken about. Um, so I, I, I talk about this contribution that Ibn Taymiyyah makes. Um, now, he's also a very pragmatic thinker, and others have written about this, um, such as uh, Felicitas Apwis, uh, and his you know, sort of uh, conception of maslaha, uh, right, or thinking of the public interest or good. Um, and he argues that in certain situations, and this is Ibn Taymiyyah, that you know, it, even though it's normatively prohibited, generally speaking, for Muslims to emulate non-Muslims, whether it be Jews or Christians, or import these shi'ar or symbolic markers that are not their own, there may be situations where it's good or even ob obligatory and um, required. So if um, a Muslim is living abroad, for example, and modern um, thinkers, modern uh, jurists have drawn upon this fatawa to argue that Muslims living as minorities um, um, in non-Muslim majority countries therefore may, um, as it were, assimilate based on this fatwa uh, or based on this legal opinion. Um, but uh, Ibn Taymiyyah argues that it is um, potentially a good idea for Muslims living abroad 
um, in Dar al-Harb, right, at the abode of war, to, as it were, pass as a non-Muslim. Um, but, you know, it's very much of a, of a utilitarian or consequentialist mode of thinking, which is um, a mode of thinking that is very much uh, um, common within Islamic legal thinking. Um, <clears throat> that, okay, if you if a Muslim needs to be a spy, then he should pass as a non-Muslim. If a Muslim needs to protect his or her life, um, uh, then he or she should pass as a non-Muslim and dress as a non-Muslim and act as a non-Muslim and celebrate holidays as a non-Muslim would, uh, even though within a Muslim-majority context in Darul Islam, it would be prohibited. So this is the way that Ibn Taymiyyah attempts to add nuance to this idea of prohibited uh, emulation or prohibited imitation uh, to show that in certain moments, um, being, distinct, being distinct, visibly distinct, is not a good idea. Thank you for thank you for that response, and especially also for the discussion of symbolism um, and why these uh, what looks like um, small differences actually carry a lot of meaning and value. I had a question about that, and I I was earlier in my list of questions, and I <laughs> jumped right into other stuff. So thank you for uh, discussing that with us. There's Ghazi who also has a who has a very unique um, take on the hadith in in, in his treatise. Was it the, the virtue of awakening? I think. What is he contributing to this discussion? Yeah, no, thank you. And Najmuddin does Najmuddin al Ghazi, right? So um, <clears throat> he uh, is an Ottoman Arab thinker who lived in also Damascus, uh, passed um, during the late 16th and and um, <clears throat> he lived during the late 16th and uh, 17th centuries. Died in 1651, if I'm not mistaken. So you know, just to rewind a, a bit once again. In terms of the, uh, the the sources that I'm looking at, so yes, I'm looking at hadith traditions, and then what I argue, and I've argued in a, another um, article that that was published um, some years ago, is that Muslims developed, Muslim thinkers developed what we might call treatises against imitation. Uh, the first of those, um, I argue, is Ibn Taymiyyah. There may have been some before him that are somehow lost in the manuscripts, but at least in my search, I wasn't able to find uh, a treatise before his. Um, the, In my view, the most, I mean, so one could argue that Ibn Taymiyyah's treatise against imitation is the most important because it's really the first. Um, but certainly the most, um, I would argue, significant in terms of its intellectual value is Najmuddin al-Ghazi's um, treatise uh, on imitation. And I'm not calling it a treatise against imitation because uh, he carries within this text and this important text um, in a, uh, the idea that it's, or at least he acknowledges, unlike most folks that wrote about this subject, that imitation, at least tashabbu, is can be a good thing, right? So mm -hmm. this is where we're getting into um, some of the more, the importance of Sufism, right, to this, to this uh, subject matter and to the book that I haven't spoken about. I've spoken about, you know, hadith traditions. I've spoken about its relevance to Islamic law within the, you know, context of Ibn Taymiyyah. But then there's another, I guess, tradition within the tradition, as it were, of Sufis who have written about tashabbu as a technology of the self. Um, and so in the chapter preceding uh, Najmuddin al-Ghazi, I speak of um, the Suhrawardis as playing an important role in speaking of 
imitation as a technology of the self, as a mode of subject formation within Sufi communities, as a way of including uh, novice Sufis within Sufi communities by um, arguing within their treatises that um, a person can become a Sufi by emulating um, those who are spiritually realized. So when I was in Damascus, um, when I visited a Sufi sheikh, and I had the opportunity to stay at his house and his home, and I shared with him the subject of my research um, many years ago as a graduate student. He taught me this couplet: "Illam takunu minhumu fatashabbahu, inna tashabbaha bil kirami falah." So, um, if you cannot be like them, as it were, or the pious, then imitate them. For imitating the virtuous or the pious um, is success, and this is his way of. Uh, speaking of tashabbu within a Sufi context to argue that if you want to become a spiritualized, re spiritually realized human being, um, then you need to find um, spiritually realized human beings and imitate them and emulate them. And for those who are familiar with the, you know, Sufism and the Sufi tradition within Islam, they know that suhba or keeping the company, as it were, of the pious is a, a significant, plays a significant role in um, Sufi technologies of self-cultivation um, and uh, shaping Sufi communities. So Najmuddin al-Ghazi draws on the Sufi tradition to think about tashabu in ways that um, are robust and, and expansive. Uh, and that's one of the arguments and I make in this chapter, that Najmuddin al-Ghazi, who's living in Ottoman Damascus, when, you know, uh, there are, when that period of time had its own sort of upheaval, social upheavals. So as Ibn Taymiyyah was concerned with Muslims imitating non-Muslims in festivals, um, Najmuddin al-Ghazi was concerned with Muslims imitating unruly Muslims and maybe even non-Muslims in coffee houses. So we see within this rise in the 16th and 17th century, the emergence of coffee houses within Muslim tradition. Um, and so uh, Najmuddin al-Ghazi writes this text, uh, write, writes this text or composes this text, um, or the virtue of awakening to, his, to what has been transmitted about imitation or emulation. Um, it's a, published today as 12 volumes. And at the time when I was a graduate student researching the subject, it was yet to be published. Um, and, you know, two volumes were in the uh, Asad Library. One volume was in the um, library, uh, Chester Beattie Library. But um, fortunately, it's been published. It's accessible to the mainstream public. Um, but it's a massive tome of, uh, you know, what I might call a window into the social imaginary of a, a 17th century thinker uh, that, um, you know, and I go into detail in, in the chapter of how Najmi Al-Ghazi thinks about Im imitation. And in other words, for him, imitation was a way of, of imagining the cosmos. So he has chapters on imitating angels, imitating uh, pious figures um, on imitating angels, devils, um, men imitating women, slaves imitating um, free people, um, Muslims imitating Jews and Christians. There are and and uh, two volumes are devoted to human beings emulating or imitating animals. Um, which I thought was really fascinating. Two volumes dedicated to animals and themselves. So it's one of the, it's important because it shows us how 
a thinker in the 17th century saw the world in a very much um, connected and integrated fashion. Um, and his contribution is important because he views imitation as a, as a technology of belonging. And this is one of the arguments that I make, is that Najmuddin al-Ghazi makes a very important intervention to thinking about um, the concept of love and the importance of love and affection to imitation. Uh, and this is an observation that Ibn Taymiyyah makes, is that you imitate those whom you love, you imitate those whom you ad admire, you imitate those whom you um, have affections for. And so for Najmuddin al-Ghazi, uh, to distinguish true and false imitation, superficial and, uh, you know, substantive imitation, you have it, it, it comes down to love, right? And so he juxtaposes the tradition with another famous tradition of the Prophet, a person belongs or people belong with the one with the ones they love. Um, and this tradition argues, or at least has been used to argue that if you want to know where you belong, who you belong, what community you belong to, whether it's Muslim or non-Muslim, whether it's a Sufi, non-Sufi, or um, national belonging, it's about love. It's about your affection. It's about where your heart is. Home is where the heart is, if you want to sort of think of an English analog or an analog within sort of Euro-American tradition. And so Ghazi argues that if we're going to talk about imitation and being different and we have to talk about love and he does so in this very sophisticated theoretically sophisticated discourse um within the um, first volume and i explore this in detail in the chapter and show why um his contribution to the discourse of imitation and being different um is very important and one that really should put najmadin al-ghazi uh, on the map of muslim thinkers um that we think about when thinking about pre-colonial islam uh, he's been more or less overlooked, um, you know, in modern academic studies and even Muslim studies, uh, in, um, and even um, contemporary Muslim or Islamic uh, thought. So he's someone that I hope that this book puts on the map uh, as a an original thinker, as an important thinker, um, and one that also illuminates how um, Muslims, even into the Ottoman era, uh, were making really substantive contributions to the Islamic intellectual tradition. Um, and it, it sort of plays an important role in dispelling kind of the the trope that, okay, Muslims um, or Islam observed a decline within, you know, um, the Ottoman, uh, you know, Ottoman era um, um, <clears throat> period. Uh, his book alone shows or demonstrates that that is just uh, not the case. Thank you for that. I want us to now talk about um, more sort of uh, modernity, uh, the modern period, uh, where the question of, you know, Muslims wearing European hats comes up. And, you know, it again, seems like a very small thing. I love the title of that chapter, but obviously very, very symbolic. And uh, I think you put it really well, um, where you say that if, if, if Europe hadn't colonized, very destructively, uh, you know, so much of the world, then this this question would not be an issue at all. Nobody would be asking this question. Nobody would care. But the fatwas and the the very different responses and the different explanations and interpretations of this, of what exactly it is that we can and can't imitate. So um, I think one of the, was it Abdul's fatwas that says that, uh, 
it's only in religious uh, matters and not cultural matters or secular matters that we're not allowed to imitate the other. Um, and then, of course, it's a huge back and forth, but it has a lot of implications and consequences. And I would I'd love for us to sort of free to summarize um, what that debate is like and, you know, what what uh, what it uh, means for, I guess, more modern Muslims. Sure. Thank you uh, for the question. Um, so it's um, it's been described by you know, at least one thinker as the most controversial fatwa in Islamic history. Um, maybe maybe hyperbolic or maybe not, but um, maybe at the time it really was, uh, it, I mean, it really was controversial. So, um, you know, it's, so we've looked at a number of, at least the book has explored a number of figures. So Ibn Taymiyyah, Najmuddin al-Bazi, another important and famous figure um, that um, my book draws attention to is Muhammad Abdu. Now, Muhammad Abdu is, um, is a well-known figure within, you know, among students of Islam, especially modern Islam, um, and his role in in, in shaping um, my, my, what some might call a modernist uh, Islam or a, um, a reformist uh, Islam, and his role in in doing so. So, um, Muhammad Abdu, um, <clears throat> at the time of the fatwa, was functioning as uh, sort of the mufti, uh, the primary mufti um, of, of, uh, of Egypt, as it were. Um, and he was asked, it's also known as the Transvaal Fatwa. And in this Transvaal Fatwa, which was a uh, location or at least a region in South Africa, Muslims living as minorities um, asked Muhammad Abdu, uh, is in his capacity as a mufti within Egypt um, of uh, a fatwa and uh, of a sort of excuse me uh, of a related set of related issues that were that were controversial and, and bothering them. So among them were you know can Hanafis pray behind Shafi'is? Can um, Muslims eat meat slaughtered by non-Muslims or people of the book? Um, and can Muslims wear, as it were, uh, the bonita, or what we might call a European-styled hat? So what is a European-styled hat? European-styled hat, or a hat at that particular time within Transvaal and elsewhere, is a hat with a brim, right? And there are many, there are many different types of hats um, with brims, like a bowler, a derby, um, etc. But the bottom line was that this style of hat was a, was a style, a, a, a sartorial style that was common among um, non-Muslims living in Transvaal at the time. So can Muslims also um, wear clothes in this particular style? Uh, and of course, that alludes to the symbolic power that wearing a hat does, uh, has, right? And I argue in the book elsewhere that um, headgear, um, as it did in the very earliest um, phases of Islam, played an important role uh, in defining one's belonging or identifying someone as being a, a part of a particular group or not, a community or not, because of its proximity to the face and the face is the overdetermined surface of identity, as I, as I mentioned. So they were wondering, is it okay for us to wear these hats um, because of their symbolic power? And so Muhammad Abdu argued, or at least in his fatwa, um, mentioned, yeah, you can eat meat slaughtered with the people of the book, the people of the book, as it were, but and you can also wear these European styled hats. You can wear hats that have this brim uh, on the front, um, and he argues that you know, yeah, it can on pragmatic grounds that yeah, maybe it can help you um, uh, 
keep the sun um, and not get a sunburn, as it were. Uh, so he kind of gives a pragmatic reasoning, uh, as it were, to defend his fatwa. But this fatwa caused a firestorm. It, it just resulted in a lot of controversy because it seemed to indicate to those who were, um, I guess, not persuaded by the, the, the opinion that Abdu was defending the um, uh, or allowing and permitting Muslims to basically pass as non-Muslims, to dress as non-Muslims, to look and maybe even be identified as a non-Muslim. And um, in the early 20th century, when um, <clears throat> the uh, when the Ottoman Empire was still in existence, but actually on its on its way to oblivion, um, when colonialism was still in um, operating at least uh, in many parts of the Muslim world um, where Europeans were exerting their their power uh, over Muslims, um, whether it be in Africa or India or um, Southeast Asia, um, this was viewed as a form of capu capitulation. Um, and so what I do is I trace the, the responses, not only among ulama, Muslim religious scholars, to um, Muhammad Abdus Fatwa, I look at its antecedents. That this was not the first time that Muslims had wondered about where it's okay, whether it's okay to wear European hats. Um, and I look at uh, or examine responses to this fatwa among um, uh, um, ulama, reformists, and non-reformists up till the 1950s. Um, now, one of the and I, I can't. I won't go into all the details. I'll, I'll let readers do so. But one of the um, main points, uh, arguments that come up is whether or not it's okay to emulate non-Muslims in what might be called cultural matters, right? And in terms of urf or custom or customary matters uh, or cultural norms uh, and uh, ritual. Now, one of the points that I make is that historically speaking, Muslim thinkers didn't make such a distinction between what we might call the domain of religion and culture uh, or ritual, ritual and culture. When you look at Ibn Taymiyyah's arguments, for example, when he's arguing about um, Muslims not participating in festivals, um, he's also, or, or dressing in a particular way, um, it's not only it's not just about ritual and Muslims adopting ritual practices of religions that are uh, of other religions. It's just about being Muslim in public and being visibly Muslim. But the the debate that took place in the twentieth century, after in response to Abdu, the issue of whether um, a particular practice was a ritual act or not became significant. Um, and it shows what I argue is that there's an evolving dimension to this discourse where Muslim thinkers are beginning to distinguish or define religion um, in a different way as something that is more, as it were, located within the domain of ritual as opposed to um, what we might, we might call the domain of culture. And I use these terms in quotes, air quotes, realizing that it's hard to distinguish between religion and culture. Um, and I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of this conversation is a way in which ulama begin to make these kinds of distinctions um, and to adopt this idea of imitation as maybe 
being restricted to the domain of ritual as opposed to the more public domain, as it were, of of um, or secular domain. And he used the you know term in quotes, air quotes, and very you know uh, um, carefully. Uh, to to show that this is one way of of showing how Muslim thinkers are beginning to think of religion in a different way, um, of deen, which is historically a term that's you know can be translated as religion, but may be translated in different ways. Um, and so, I think for religious studies scholars and scholars of religion, the the kind of tracing the debates around the European hat is also a in important way or an, a one way of tracing the development of how Muslim thinkers in the 20th century are beginning to think about religion in new ways, in ways that um, are being increasingly demarcated and distinguished from the state and even such a domain as what we, what we might call uh, culture. Thank you so much for that. And then my last content question is going to be about the epilogue, which, as I was just telling you, I loved it. And I really appreciated your proposals and um, your reading of uh, your suggestions moving forward with this uh, tradition and this idea of emulation. But as you also explore in, I believe in the epilogue, why some differences endure and some don't. And so, again, my favorite one, uh, the most brand new thing to me in this book probably was that the, we could want, once upon a time, we were not to wear, no, we were to wear shoes inside the mosque and now we don't. And Muslims, of course, do mostly um, wear shoes during, uh, do not wear shoes during prayer. But but you argue that in the past, um, this effort was marked by, and, and you've discussed it in your in your, in, the, in your answers here also, that this effort um, to mark yourself as different from the others was marked by hierarchies. Um, but that that's not how quiet it should be today, where in a world, um, in today's context, in modernity, we're trying um, you know, we're, we're, there's an effort to reduce hierarchies as much as possible. And um, so I'd love to hear any thoughts you have of, on sort of moving forward with this tradition. What are some ways that Muslims can read this tradition or respond to this idea, this claim that we should not emulate the other and what it means for on a practical level or in a, especially for those of us who live in a, in a context with the inner, you know, interfaith communities or um, interreligious communities, how do we approach this um, hadith or this tradition or this idea of emulating the other? Sure. Um, that's, you know, so the epilogue, I'm grateful for one of the the readers um, of the manuscript in its earlier phase, because when I originally wrote the, I guess, conclusion, as it were, or the, what we would call the epilogue, um, there, there wasn't really any constructive element to it. Um, I was sort of content with writing a you know, historical study, and it's, it is a historical study, but leaving anything constructive, as it were, what we call constructive for either another work or for someone else to do. But one of the readers posed a question, well, you've made, you know, you've kind of this, this exhaustive study of this idea of being different from the beginnings of Islam all the way through modernity. Um, and you kind of gesture that there are these changes that have taken place. Um but you're really not elaborating on them, and maybe you should, right? And so I began thinking, well, well, I mean, if I've done this study, then I'm probably better positioned than most to actually make a contribution to maybe how things ought to be. Um, and when thinking about this idea in 
modernity. And I thought about my 20-something self in that mosque um, many years ago, and I said, well, maybe that's something that I would have liked to have heard or read at that particular time. It would have helped me to think about this issue in ways that were important and meaningful. Um, so in the in the epilogue, I, I do, um, you know, trace and, you know, I, I would say that it's really a, you know, um, a beginning rather than a, an end. Uh, really, is a beginning to kind of rethinking this idea of being distinct and different um, in modernity uh, or at least um, contemporary times. I, I make a few points. Number one is uh, the first part of the epilogue is conceptual. So I, I introduce this idea of style, and it's not some, it's something that I allude to in the earlier chapters, but I argue that for students of religion and students of Islam, um, maybe a, 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 an not maybe, but a, an important uh, term, uh, almost a term of religious studies that I would argue is a time a concept of style. And the reason why I make this argument or this claim at the end of the book is to show that Look, in terms of thinking about Muslim difference and how to be distinct, distinct and different, um, one way of thinking about or talking about being different is through the styles of being different. Because style is a concept that involves the inward and the outward, the exterior and the interior. And so much of what you know I've argued and what I argue in the book is that when thinking about being different, it is something that is visible and external but it's also for Muslim thinkers, something that is internal, uh, invisible and about subject formation. So I argue that style is a term that helps us to bring together and think about the lahir and the batin, um, the exteriority and interiority, uh, inside and outside in ways that are dynamic and ways that are integrated um, and, and intertwined. Because that is how I claim that Muslim thinkers across time and place viewed being different as something that is internal and external and something that's intertwined in Muslim subject formation and Muslim imaginations of the self and Muslim imaginations of the other. So that's the first part of the, the epilogue. It's an argument. It's a claim that I'm making, that I invite scholars to think about not just Muslim difference, but religion and, and Islam using the term style as a way to talk about um Muslim praxis and Muslim uh, forms of Muslim life um, in you know across Islamic societies. The second part of the epilogue is where really the I guess the second component of the constructive dimension is um, you know that brings I think my my personal experiences that I speak about in the preface uh, to kind of bear upon what does to shun, but what does it mean to be different? What does it mean to be distinct? Uh, for Muslims today. How should maybe Muslims begin to think about whoever imitates the people becomes one of them um, uh, today, especially for Muslims who are living in interfaith societies that you mentioned. Um, and I, I take a couple of um, examples and a couple of texts um, from Ayat Akhtar's Disgraced um, to uh, Sherman Jackson's Islam of the Black American to build a case or the beginnings of the case that, look, um, in pre-modern Islamic societies, pre-modern Muslim societies, it was an ideal um, among Muslim elites, um, whether in government or within religious circles, for their, for to construct an ideal Islamic societies around hierarchies. 
But for Muslims today who live in liberal secular democracies or, um, uh, you know, um, other uh, states in which egalitarianism or equality is the ideal, and that is what defines citizenship, then, you know, how um, pragmatic and, uh, or at least, um, how, you know, how relevant is this hierarchical worldview to um, the cultivation of, of Muslim life today? Um, and, and so I, I make the argument that um, that there is a growing body of scholarship, not only among, I guess, reformist Muslim thinkers, but also among con conservative or traditionalist Muslim thinkers, that um, this ideal of hierarchy needs to be rethought within um, modern forms of Islam. And this would also be relevant to thinking about difference and whether it's okay for Muslims to, as it were, emulate non-Muslims. Um, I argue that this hierarch hierarchical ideal, um, maybe, I mean, not maybe, should be set aside. Um, and that in terms would then reframe the lens, or at least, um, yeah, uh, the lens through which we see these Islamic traditions on being distinct and different. Um, now, it doesn't mean the erasure of Muslim difference. Um, I think today um, it's still important for not only Muslims, but any human being to feel that they can set themselves apart in ways that uh, are in tune with who they are, um, in ways that are maybe visible and maybe ways that may be invisible. But um, it shouldn't be based on this idea of somehow Muslims being superior to non-Muslims um, in a pejorative way, or that non-Muslims are somehow inherently morally inferior, which is often a subtext to what we find in um, pre-modern Muslim discourses. Um, uh, so uh, that is one of the arguments that I'm making. And I, I think it, um, it it's not entirely novel. There are there are other scholars that have written about hierarchy and rethinking hierarchies from Zahra Ayubi to Kisha Ali to even Jonathan Brown. Um, and so I, I think uh, um, the arguments that I'm making um, are a way of showing that there is a realization among Muslim scholars um, that uh, you know hierarchy as an ideal may no, no longer works in um, society in which Muslims are seeking to live in harmony with uh, non-Muslims. Um, and so I kind of propose a, a different way of reading the hadith, man tashabbaha uh, towards the end, in a way that is non-hierarchical, in a way that is uh, that attempts to enhance connections that Muslims have with non-Muslims. Uh, and I argue that this um, way of reading the hadith is not foreign to the Islamic tradition, as it were, but in many ways is a natural outgrowth of the dynamic Muslim thinking that that uh, that the book has shown, right? Whether it be Ibn Taymiyyah to um, Najmuddin al-Ghazi or Muhammad Abdu, uh, one of the goals that I've had or that I have in this book is to show that the quote-unquote Islamic tradition uh, is a dynamic one and one that is very much integrated or connected to the broader historical context and political context and cultural context and social context in which Muslims have lived. Um, and, I, and I hope it is a persuasive argument 
but I also probably understand that it may come upon some sort of resistance um, from folks. Um, but I hope that it appears to be a natural organic outgrowth of the historical arguments that I've made. Um, but one that is also distinctive to who I am and my own difference as an academic, as a scholar, um, and, and just a human being. Thank you so much for that. It, it's the epilogue, especially that I'm recommending to a lot of people. Um, so my the last questions that we the last question that we ask our guest is usually uh, to tell us about any work you're doing currently that we can look forward to in the near future. That's not to suggest that you must be constantly producing scholarship, but if you're working on anything that I can look forward to, that would be great. Sure. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm working on a number of things. So um, I continue to. Um, write about stuff related to being distinct and different and um and have an article that's i think just come out in critical muslim on on copycats which is some ways a, a a digest a brief digest on some of what i've talked about today um so that's critical muslim 44 um there's also an article that i've put on the back burner for a very long time connected to this subject um, in which during my time in Damascus, I had these amazing interviews with um, some of the most important ulama of Damascus, from Wahbe um, Zuhaili um, to uh, Mufti Salpini in Aleppo, uh, and, and, to, um, and, and many others, some of whom have now passed away. These amazing interviews about difference, Muslim assimilation, the Islamic tradition that I have recorded, but that I have yet to um, transcribe and, and, and sort of compile into a, a, a study. And that's something that I that I want to do. Um, <clears throat> I'm also looking at or working on translating Ghazi's um, um, The Virtue of Awakening, not the entire 12 volumes, which would be um, a lifetime kind of work, but um, translating uh, excerpts that I think would uh, that I that I think a broader audience should should read. Um, in terms of a kind of projects that are unrelated to the subject, um, I'm in, I'm still interested in scripture, um, and but I'm I'm pivoting towards looking at modern Quran interpretation and Quran interpretation within the United States and America, um, in particular. Um, so it, a different historical context, um, but really thinking about, once again, um, thinking about Islamic tradition uh, within uh, and its connection to culture, right, and acculturation of Islamic tradition, which I think is also a broader kind of theme um, driving my my scholarship. So um, it's still kind of ambiguous what I'm, what I'm uh, or at least um, undefined, as it were, in terms of the precise uh, book project uh, that that is coming up, but I I suspect it'll have something to do with um, Quran interpretation in in the United States. All right. Well, that sounds very exciting. And I again thank you so much for talking to me about your book that I really really enjoyed, and I I can't wait to assign at least chapters of it in my Islam classes. Well, it's been a true pleasure. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that. Um, uh, you know, we have other new conversations in the future. Absolutely. Okay, so that was Yusha Patel on his new book, The Muslim Difference, Defining the Line Between Believers and Unbelievers from Early Islam to the Present, published in 2022 with Yale. It's one of the best books that I've ever read, and I am very hopeful that others will enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
I'll see you next time. Salam.